Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 23. We are in the midst of this journey through Psalm 23. I told you a few weeks ago, I'm not real sure how long this is going to last. Well, as we kind of plotted it out and walked through it, it's going to be at least a few more weeks. We're going to uh, be in Psalm 23, probably right up around Thanksgiving. We will finish this series. Of the 150 psalms that we have in the book of Psalms, there is no psalm that is more quoted, more recited, more memorized, and more inscribed on cards and housewares than this psalm. There's no doubt it's the most famous psalm, the most culturally important psalm. Augustine once called Psalm 23 the martyr's hymn because of the number of stories of martyrs, people that literally gave their life for the cause of Christ, who recited Psalm 23 at or right before their death. Lincoln often would speak this psalm, talk about this psalm during the throes of depression during his Civil War nights. And some of you may remember that September 11th in 2001, when addressing the nation, George W. Bush quoted Psalm 23. Why? Well, because it's words of comfort. It's words that gives us comfort as we read, and it's also words about God. What or who He is, and what He does and is doing. And I think one of the reasons the psalm resonates with us, with, and, and we know Psalm 23 is often used at the, at the gravesides of people and loved ones, of funeral services, and there is this sentiment and understanding, especially for Psalm 23.4, which we will get to in a couple of weeks. But Psalm 23.4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It is definitely in the midst of those difficult moments, those deep, dark moments, and particularly in moments of sympathy that we cling to that particular verse. But what makes Psalm 23 so engaging and interesting for most people is that when you read it, it is for today. It is for now. It is for here. And it reminds us not of who God has been. It it reminds us of who God is. It's so important that very first verse is not the Lord was my shepherd. And the tenses of the verbs throughout the psalm are all present tense. This isn't about the God that was or the God that will be. This is about the God that is. And it's not just who he is. It is what he is doing in our lives today. And last week, if you were here, we talked about that in the first couple of verses, you get this picture of peace. That there are these pictures that are given to us as it describes the shepherd taking care of the sheep. And in the first couple of verses, you get this picture of peace. That It says, He makes me lie down. And we talked about last week. I'd encourage you if you weren't here to go back and watch it online. There are these pictures of what a sheep needs in order to lie down and to be comfortable enough to do that. And that God provides those things for our lives. This week we're going to talk about two other pictures that are here. Let's read Psalm 23 again. The Lord is my shepherd. 
I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. A word of encouragement to us, but also a couple of pictures that we need. The first picture I want us to talk about today is that in this passage of Scripture, in this psalm, we get a picture of guidance. A picture of guidance. Now we find this right there in verses 2 and 3. And when you read those and look at it, there are two times that he talks about being, that he leads us. Verse 2, he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his name's sake. The word leads there is exactly what it sounds like. This is one of those I don't have to go into a deep Hebrew word study for you. The word leads means leads, takes, brings along. In our day and time, if you look up leads, by the way, that some of the some of the synonyms or some kind of the word pictures that are there in our English, one of the ones that comes up is he leads us along. He shepherds us, guides us. It gives us pictures here, and we talked in depth about last week, and so we won't talk in depth about that again, but I do want to mention it again. One of the ways he leads is he leads us into place of rest. That's what the lie down in green pastures, the lead beside quiet waters. He leads us to a place of rest, of recovery, of gaining our strength, of being um, in a place where we can be fed and nurtured, and that we can enjoy that in restful moments. But this picture also extends not only to those times when he leads us to places of rest and comfort and being able to enjoy what's going on. It says he leads us in paths of righteousness. And what we need to understand in our lives is that there are times in our life for both. Time for rest, a time to rejuvenate, and a time to move, and a time to push forward. That sometimes in our lives, God leads us into places to learn and to study and to think and to discuss and even to debate. But then there are other times when he leads us to go and to act and to move and to push forward. And so there are times he leads us to that, that, that meadow where he adds us to bed down and to eat and to enjoy what is there. And then too, from what we have gained in that moment, to move on. A time to act. I told you before, one of my favorite pictures of this in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 14. If you remember in Exodus chapter 14, they find themselves between a rock and a hard place. Egyptian army's coming, they're at the sea, they're going all this stuff, and the people start complaining. And if I don't know if you remember this scene or not, but they start complaining to Moses, and they're saying to Moses, why did you bring us out here? Why did you bring us out here to die? 
What do you do in Moses? And Moses is like, God's going to provide. And so he begins this eloquent prayer to the Lord. Lord God, we thank you for this glorious day that we have before us. Y'all have heard those prayers, right? And as he begins to pray that, and God, you're doing these amazing things, God says to him in verse 15, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. Now that seems like a normal kind of thing. But this is one of those moments when the CSB that we use doesn't kind of capture the forcefulness with which God is saying this to him. Because we look at it, and this is in the Living Bible. Anybody remember the Living Bible? Remember how we had one in our, our house. Green cover sat on the coffee table, the Living Bible. The Living Bible says, The Lord said to Moses, Quit praying, get the people moving, forward march, go. And that's the sense that is there. One of the things that I think can happen in the life of believers and in the life of churches is we can get stuck in a pattern of discussion and talk and fail to move and to do the things that God has called us to do in action. And it's good to debate things. It's good to have deep theological teaching. It's good to have questions about what is right and what is wrong. And it's good to talk about strategy and all of that. But if your strategy and your theology doesn't put feet to what you're doing and reach out to the people that God has called us to reach out, then it is not being profitable. And what it says in Psalm 23 is, yes, there are times that God will have us lead us to a place to reevaluate, to restructure, to engage with him in that moment, to rest and relax and rejuvenate. But there's also a time when he's going to lead us in a path that goes towards righteousness. Now, you say, well, that's not really like path of righteousness. What does that mean? There's really two meanings here that are happening. First of all, it can mean along the right path, around the path that is the one that God has chosen for us, the one that is important in in their day and time when a shepherd was leading sheep, they'd have forethought, they had to have planning, they had to know the right routes and the plans and where they're going to go and which direction they were going to follow. And God has that mapped out for your life. And so, yes, it's leading you you in the right path, but it's more than that. It's leading in your path that will help you to grow in your righteousness and your understanding of who God is. You see, where God leads us is always right, and it always helps to develop our righteousness. I didn't say it would be easy or always good. In fact, there are times that he will lead us to a path that is not easy and may even seem impossible. And the question is, in those moments, will we trust how do we know that? Well, you know what comes right after this verse, right? It's Psalm 23, 4. We've already referenced it almost every week. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. The, we'll get to all this a little bit more when we get there in a couple of weeks. But the implication there is that he is following the Lord and the Lord leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, which meant the Lord led us into it and will lead us out of it. But it means that sometimes on our path, there will be difficult places that we have to traverse. And in the part of that process of our life of following that path, 
path. The question is, will we trust him in the midst of it and stay on the right path that leads to our righteousness? In Scripture, there are, by the way, a couple of ways we understand righteousness. And this particular psalm has a particular understanding of righteousness. First of all, righteousness can be that which Christ gives us, that we cannot give ourselves, that we cannot borrow or buy from the Lord, that righteousness has to come only through Jesus Christ, the blood, death, and resurrection, and us accepting the gift of salvation into our lives and Him giving us, imparting to us, granting to us His righteousness for us. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, it says, And this is what Paul wants, is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So there is a one kind of working righteousness that is positional, that when Jesus looks at us, those of us that are saved, those of us who have been bought by the blood of Christ, those of us that have accepted his salvation, that when we are saved, we are deemed, made, declared righteous forevermore by Jesus. But scripture also talks about a practical righteousness. Not just our position in Christ that we have been made righteous, but a practical righteousness of learning to walk in the way that God would have us to walk. Learning to do what God would have us to do. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so there is the righteousness that is given to us by Christ and a righteousness that we that we attempt to live for that Christ has laid down for us. In the in the um, famous spiritual warfare armor of God in Ephesians chapter six, it says that we're to wear the breastplate of righteousness, that we are to protect ourselves with, first of all, the understanding that we are made right by God, but also to live out daily what we are called to do so that when people look at us, they don't bring accusation against our Lord because of the lifestyle that we're living. And so what it's saying in Psalm 23, 23, verse Three is that He is guiding us along the right path that leads to our right living. J.I. Packer says about this path that we're on and the guidance God gives that He is leading us to behavior patterns that please God because they correspond to His commandments and match His moral nature. Ultimately, what is happening in our lives is Christ has declared us righteous and he is molding us every step of the way into the picture of the life that he has called us to, which matches his character and his being. We ought to be daily made more and more like Jesus. So how do we know where he's leading I mean, we can quote Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. 
But how in the world do we do that? How do we know what God is calling us to do? How do we make big decisions? How do we make small decisions? How do we know the decisions and the path that we need to take on a daily basis? When you wake up in the morning and you're you're aching from a night's sleep or you don't know what you're aching from, you're just aching and you're trying to figure stuff and you get your coffee and you're getting everybody together and um, moving in the right direction and all of that's kind of coming together. How in the world do you get all that together and then think, how am I going to live in the paths of righteousness today? How do I walk in those paths on a daily basis? How do I make big decisions, big changes in my life? Well, here's just a few kind of tips on that. I want to give you six steps in the midst of all of that to try to figure out God's guidance in your life, how he leads us in the paths of righteousness. First of all, whenever you're in the midst of your life or making a decision or daily, commit your decision to the Lord in prayer. The first step is always prayer, putting our lives in tune with him, putting our minds in tune with Christ, praying that God will give us wisdom as we move. Secondly, we seek answers in Scripture. We open up God's Word and we go to God's Word. Now, I'm not saying that you proof text it and you try to find the perfect verse for what's there. I just mean spending time in God's Word will teach us about His character, will teach us about His behavior, will teach us what He would do in any certain situation. Studying the life of Jesus, studying what God did and how He handled things in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as we do that, we become more aware of this goal that God has for us, more aware of what He's turning us into. If we becoming like the Son of God, we need to understand what Christ is like. Three, you ask for help. And this I mean, if you're making a big decision particularly, you're wondering about some things, you're questioning what you're doing, seek out help. Specifically here I mean from like-minded believers that are seeking the Lord. One of my biggest concerns for my generation it used to be just for my generation. Now I see it in all generations. Is that we have lost our sense of being able to understand where to go for good advice. So many sources around us. So many sources that we can go to for information. We are in a time of information overload. We can find any information we want, but that doesn't mean that we should be looking at those sources for the information. Every week it seems like I see another study, another research thing, another idea that shows how the number of people that get their news from social media or other platforms, that those platforms or other media are not what they pretend to be. I saw this week, y'all realize we're, we're living in some sci-fi stuff, right? Y'all realize that? There's some group out there that is making online AI human beings that are then infiltrating social media networks and becoming living things on those networks, interacting with other people, and other people think that they are real live people and they are computer-generated AI. Here's what I know for sure, okay? 
That in my life, the sources that I can trust beyond measure are first of all God's Word. And then gathering together groups of people that are also seeking the Lord together and discerning amongst ourselves, not with a bunch of outside noise, but on biblical knowledge and understanding what's happening, acknowledging and finding out what God is leading us to do. So ask for help, but make sure you're asking for help from the right people. I think I've shared this before, but even something as simple um, because I, this, this stat just keeps coming back to me. And as I was thinking about this today, it just came, came back. And I may have shared it even recently, but um, in a recent book by a guy named Jason Thacker, at the end of the book, he does an appendix. And he says that in a recent study, they discovered that the top 15 Christian Facebook sites in America are bots and fake. From Eastern European non-Christian entities. The 15 most read and retweeted. Re, what are you doing? What do you call it on Facebook? Shared, right? Shared. I've never sounded more like a non-techie than at that moment. Shared on Facebook. The 15 most shared and read Christian sites in America are automated bots from Eastern Europe that people in our churches are sharing them and see, see in what here, see what this is. Look at that. That's amazing. Ask for help and be discerning. Four, evaluate the circumstantial evidence. Look at what God is leading you around you, what's happening around you. This is not at all number one on the list. Don't look at your circumstances and say, see, this is happening in my life. It's lining up. That means I've got to go. But when you begin to feel God moving in particular directions or making certain decisions, evaluate what's happening around you and begin to push forward. Number five, step out in faith. Time and time again in Scripture, God calls people to do things that doesn't make sense, that seems impossible, and He doesn't answer their prayers or give them validation of the direction until they have actually stepped out in faith and started to do the thing that he has called them to do. Some people want God to give them the answers to big questions in their lives, but they will not obey him in the small things he has made perfectly clear we need to be doing all the time first. If you're not daily reading your word or you're not engaging in the church and environment and being in small group and learning from people, if you're not doing those things, God is saying, if you're not faithful with the small, why would I entrust you with the big? And then lastly, you trust the Lord. You make a decision, you move forward, and you trust the Lord. Psalm 23 gives us a picture of guidance. He leads me beside quiet waters. He leads me along the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Secondly, and the only other picture we'll talk about today is there's a picture of restoration. Here it says right there in Psalm 23, verse 3, he renews my life. Now, this is a verse that I, I still prefer, the, the KJV. He restores my soul. By the way, there's a discussion about what's behind this picture, but most scholars that I've read, most people that have studied this, think that there is a particular picture of a sheep that is understood in this particular verse. 
You see, there is a situation that sheep can get themselves into that causes them not to be able to do anything for themselves. It's when they get cast or cast down. And it literally happens when a sheep lays down and then begins to kind of rock a little bit or begins to roll a little bit. Maybe there's a little itch on him on his back and he begins to itch it a little bit, roll around a little bit. And at some point, particularly sheep that have enjoyed what they have eaten recently more than others, can tip to where they are fully on their back. And then they can't get up. And it's a little bit of a silly, crazy scene. They're literally turned upside down. Legs are flailing. They are bleeding sometimes. Bleating, not bleeding. Bleating, buying out, trying to cry out. And they're, they're, their legs going and nothing is doing any good. Now, it looks a little silly at first, but then you realize it is very dangerous for the sheep. The gases begin to build up in their stomach and in other areas begin to sink to the bottom of their body. The blood stops circulating to their legs. They lose all feeling in their legs. They are vulnerable to attack because they literally cannot turn over or do anything or run. They're unable to find food or water. They're unable to eat. And if a sheep who is cast down is not turned back over in a decent amount of time, within hours the sheep could die. There's an old shepherd saying that says, a downed sheep is a dead sheep. Now here's what's interesting is, multiple times in Scripture, the Bible talks about us being cast down or downcast. And some scholars think that there is a connection between being cast down, being cast, and that picture of the sheep where we are helpless and hopeless and we can't do anything on our own. And the only way that a sheep can be restored in that moment is to have the shepherd come and literally pull them over, push them over. One shepherd described that. When he does that, you can see, um, um, he said, kind of like the pins and needles in your own leg if your leg goes asleep or your arm goes asleep. Like you can see the sheep kind of wobbling and then it starts to feel better, feel better, and then it gallops off. And this picture in Psalm 23 is literally that of the shepherd restoring life, restoring vitality, setting the sheep back up. In there it means to restore vitality, to restore vigor, and to restore strength. So the question is, what does he restore our soul from? How does he do that? What is it that's been mined here? Just a couple of things. First of all, he restores us from sin. Restores vitality, vigor, and strength in our life by rescuing us from sin. There is nothing in Scripture that is described that can turn us over and make us helpless more than the sin in our own lives. And God, through a lamb sent to slaughter in His Son Jesus, has paid the price for our sin and saved us from a hopeless situation from which we could not recover. But God, who is rich in mercy, the wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life. Let me just say this to you. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you've been a part of a church at some point in your life. Maybe you grew up in the church and you've walked away. Maybe you're here and you've just never really investigated that or thought about that. Can I tell you this? That without Jesus Christ, you are hopeless to do anything about the sin in your own life, about the shortcoming in your own life, about the guilt of your own life. Only Jesus saves. The good news about that is that there is absolutely nothing we can do. And so you don't have to spend your life trying to figure out how to live a life that will eventually measure up to what God intends for you to do. The good news is that that has already been provided for us. And Jesus wants to turn us over, restore the vitality of ourselves, and give us life eternal. God restores us from our sin. He also restores us from shame. There's some of you in this room that you have a relationship with Jesus. You've been saved. You've accepted Him and you have been declared righteous before Him forevermore. But in the course of your life, either you intentionally wandered off or you got led astray. Either intentionally you decided that you didn't want to follow the path that God had set before you. You didn't want to do what God had called you to do. You didn't want to be what God had called you to be. And you began to investigate and experiment and go in multiple directions with multiple things. Or in a singular direction with a singular thing that led you away from the Lord. And you have wandered away. Scripture makes it clear that God will continually seek you. And He desires to restore you, to set you right. And because of what He's done for you, you do not have to feel condemnation. You do not have to feel shame. You do not have to understand yourself as less than worthy of the blood of Christ. You're worthy because He has deemed you so. And for some of you, maybe it wasn't an intentional walking away, but something tripped you up in life. Maybe a situation that went away you didn't intend to, an unanswered prayer in your mind that led you down a path, or someone walked into your path, circumstances, medical circumstances, job situations, things led you away. Maybe you got involved in good things that led you away from the Lord. And the truth is God is seeking you. Can I tell you this, that if you're a child of God, there is nothing that you can do to walk away from the Lord far enough that you have removed yourself from His family. There may be accusations thrown at you. There may be sin in your own life that builds up. But in the midst of that, God promises us He can restore our soul. There are a couple of clips that kind of become viral in the last week and a half or so about an incident that happened on October 14th. First of all is the viral sensation of the events that happened on October 14th. And then secondly, a pastor, uh, a preacher, preaching professor, gave it as an illustration about something that we can relate to. In fact, I told 
Uh, Noah and I were talking about this the other day, and Noah, I told him this morning, hey, I'm going to use that illustration. He goes, great, I used it Wednesday night. So our youth are getting it double nights. On October 14th, just a few days ago, a couple of activists walked into the National Gallery in London. They were wearing Stop Oil shirts, and they were obviously on a mission. They walked up to a particular painting, Van Gogh's Sunflower Painting, an 1888 masterpiece valued somewhere in the vicinity of $80 million. That's a lot, right? Okay. As they got in front of the painting, they pulled out cans of tomato soup. And with their stop oil being filmed to go on a viral tweet, they took the cans of soup and they threw it onto the Van Gogh painting. And then took glue out of their shirts and glued their hands and then glued themselves to the walls in protest. As you can imagine, as that began to go viral, people were concerned and worried, angry. Why would they ever do something to defame such an amazing masterpiece? And about that time, as people began to get worried, the National Gallery sent out a tweet. In the tweet, they recounted that at 11 o'clock on October 14th, some people walked in and they threw a red substance, presumably tomato soup, onto the Van Gogh sunflower painting. And then they simply had this quote. There is some minor damage to the frame... But the painting is unharmed. Now, as you can imagine, they kind of plan for instances like this. And there was a fine glaze of glass, maybe even imperceptible to the human eye, protecting it over it. And so when they came and threw the tomato soup onto the painting, it never got to the painting because of the protective glass that was in front of it. Hershel York, who is the preaching professor that used this as an illustration, then says, In your own life, the law or people may throw accusations and your sin may splatter across the frame of your lives. But Jesus is greater and you are forgiven and we are his masterpiece protected by his blood and it shall never mar his masterpiece again. He restores from shame. Finally, there's a picture here of restoring from sadness. While that may seem like those are two big ones, we just did sin and shame. There are moments in our lives when we are overwhelmed with the circumstances of life. And maybe you're there. It just seems like life keeps coming at you and it's not good. There's illnesses and financial difficulties. You turn on the news and everything is bad and getting worse. I think that could be the news headline on most places. It's bad and it's getting worse. And yet in the midst of that, we can trust the Lord to restore us 
and give us guidance and give us His love. He can restore us from sadness. Psalm 42.5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted in me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. He restores my soul. There's a little phrase at the end of these verses that reminds us why He gives us guidance and reminds us why He restores us. And reminds us why it gives us peace. And we can't move on today without at least mentioning it because it is the reason for it all. See, there are some people that think that verse 3, that for his name's sake, which is there at the very end, is specifically there to talk about the right path that he is leading us. And there can definitely be an argument for that. But I believe that it may be that for his name's sake gives us a picture of all that has come before it in these verses. That the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not walk for the sake of his name. And he lets me lie down in green pastures. For his name's sake. He leads me beside quiet waters for his name's sake. He renews my life for his name's sake. And he leads me along the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Because the reality that we must be reminded of again and again and again and again in our lives is that our lives are not about us. It's not about me, it's not about you. This church is not about us. It's not about our desires. It's not about our wants. It's not about our agendas. This church and your life is for the sake of the name of the Lord. It is for His glory. As are all things that are created. They are created to give Him glory. Why? Because He alone is worthy of it. And so as we think about those Restoration. So we're restored, not just so we can say, man, I'm glad to be restored. Although, man, that is awesome to be restored. We're restored so that we can give glory to God in the midst of it. We are guided, not just so we get on the right path. Although, man, that is glorious and an awesome blessing. But we're restored to get on the right path that we might give glory to God. And so as we continue and as we think about this, We just ask ourselves the question on a daily basis. How is my life bringing glory to God today? Dear Jesus, today I come and admit that I have done things that are wrong in your sight. I have done them because I wanted to, even though I knew they were wrong. And I admit that I can do nothing about saving myself from my sin. And so today, Jesus, I'm telling you that I believe that you came and lived a perfect life, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you rose again from the grave. And today, Lord, I'm asking you to save me, to save me from my sins, to restore my soul. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.